You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. We will halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt. Nothing's changed. The circus moves on, rinse and repeat. We have an opportunity to become Europe's Silicon Valley. We can perhaps be a broker of some sort with Ukraine. We expect inflation to come off quite rapidly in the rest of this year. Obviously, we want to see that happen. What we now need is a period of stable, quiet, serious government. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. There's nothing like a minor personal finance heart attack to get your week started, is there? This is the news that mortgage rates in the UK have hit 6% according to Money Facts as the cost of borrowing for UK gilts has been rising uh, to levels not seen since the financial crisis. It, it, I feel like every time that we talk about this, it's just that mortgages are getting more and more expensive. But they are, because inflation keeps surprising economists to the upside month after month after month. And there's potential for the Bank of England to hike rates even more. If we get another upside inflation surprise on Wednesday, it could be a half point hike that we see on Thursday. And you've got markets pricing for rates to hit 6%. Then the commercial banks would add even more to that. So it would surpass the levels in the uh, market for normal people that they had to pay in the time of the trust era. Because to put this in a bit of context, it's only it's only weeks rather than months ago that we were expecting the Bank of England to pause, right? And we thought we this this could be it for now. And and now they are certainly on the way up again. Seems like a distant pass. <laughs> and look, the Resolution Foundation putting figures on this for people of what they expect. Uh, those who have to refinance their mortgages in 2024. And as Ewan has been pointing out, this is a limited number of people who are only those that are refixing that are going to be affected by this. But they're facing a £2,900 average increase in annual payments. But of course, this is political because it's Rishi Sunak's number one priority to halve inflation by the end of the year. These higher interest rates are the response to inflation. They're adding to the cost of living crisis for those people with mortgages. Yes, that's not everyone, Ewan. But also, as rates get higher, it increases the risk of recession. You've already got anemic growth. Growing the economy is one of Rishi Sunak's other priorities, so maybe he won't hit either of them. Also, the timing of this is potentially terrible for a general election. If all those people that are paying, that are refinancing, have to refinance their mortgage and then they have to vote, I mean, you're going to remember that your mortgage has gone up in in uh, cost so dramatically. And then who are you blaming for that? Yeah, and there's been an interesting political debate about uh, easing some of this pain. And the, the Lib Dems are calling for uh, uh, government handouts to, to people with uh, suffering mortgage mm. pain. But of course, the whole problem with that is it then undoes the Bank of England's work. Exactly, which is exactly what the Treasury has said, that it's completely the opposite of what the BOE is trying to do. But the question is, do you just help out those people whose homes are at risk of repossession? 
Yeah, true. Look, plenty to unpack. We're going to be speaking to our Money to Still columnist, John Stepek, about this in a couple of minutes' time. But uh, another story that I know you and always an eye on a by-election, and now you've got four. <laughs> yeah, I think we need like a daily by-election update, maybe with a nice <laughs> jingle... I could do a little dance. Um, since Friday's show, we've got news of another by-election, this time in Somerset. Uh, Conservative MP David Warburton, accused of sexual harassment and drug abuse, what he calls malicious allegations, has resigned. Now, this is a by-election which will be causing a lot of excitement at Lib Dem HQ. Somerton and Froome has a 19,000 majority. On the face of it, it's a pretty safe Tory seat, but... Uh, it isn't in many ways because this is a seat held by the Lib Dems from 97 right through to 2015. Somerset is always one of those counties which is in play. Uh, the party, the Lib Dems need a 15% swing. Okay. Uh, and on recent form, that's something that they will very much be hoping you know, to, to achieve. Right, something else to watch more on those by-elections as we get it. These are just some of the headaches that the Prime Minister uh, is facing this week. He's also got uh, the House of Commons due to vote in a damning report, the Partygate report that found Boris Johnson, the former Prime Minister, deliberately and repeatedly misled Parliament over the Partygate scandal. So lots to consider when thinking about the political week ahead. Our UK government editor Alex Morales is with us in studio for more on this. Can we start with the, the Partygate report, first of all, on this expected vote today? Is this a big problem for Rishi Sunak? Well, the, uh, the, the problem seems to have dissipated a little bit in that Boris um, Johnson seems to have called off his attack dog. So obviously the, the big potential for, for Rishi Sunak was to have conflict within his own party over how to vote on this. Um, MPs have been given a free vote so they can vote with their conscience, which means he's not forcing anyone to endorse this report. Um, and, and moreover, I, th- I think actually perhaps the severity of the punishment um, recommended by the the committee makes it easier for Tories to abstain on this because while they might agree with the verdict that um, Boris Johnson misled Parliament, they might not think that the punishment um, is sort of commensurate with the act. They might think, I mean, the committee said they, a, that they want to strip Boris Johnson of, of his right to attend um, Parliament. He's now a former MP. Former MPs would normally have a pass that gives them access to the parliamentary estate. They want to strip him of that pass. Um, and also they say they would have recommended a 90-day recommendation, which is pretty unprecedented, uh, a 90-day suspension from the House of Commons had yeah. he remained a member. Is, is it unusual that a former MP would be disinvited from the parliamentary estate? It's it's very unusual. Uh, I imagine uh, it happens with serious crimes. John Burkow, I think, is another recent example of um, an MP. He's the former speaker um, who, who's been stripped of his right to hold a pass. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't actually mean that they can't attend the House of Commons. It just means that they need someone to invite them to attend. And, and one would imagine that someone like Boris Johnson has no shortage of people who will invite him into the, into the <laughs> parliamentary estate. What are some of the things which will be in Conservative MPs' minds as they weigh up whether to vote in favour of or against or indeed have a pressing engagement in their constituency <laughs> later on? Well, I, th- I think it's it's exactly that. They'd be worried about what their constituents think because Boris Johnson still remains very popular amongst grassroots conservatives um, and that includes the, cons- the constituency parties. So I think a lot of them would be worried about... Um, I mean... Uh, so ahead of a general election, um, MPs have to be reselected by their constituency parties to stand in the um, in the next general election. I think a lot of that's taken place already, but there will be those who have not yet been reselected and who'll be worried about reselection. So they won't really want to alienate a whole swathe of Boris Johnson supporters in their constituency parties. Um, and but but then on the other side, there's the there's the sort of um, the. Pers- 
the perception of people who disapprove of Boris Johnson who might think, well, I want my MP to take a principled stance. So they'll be weighing up <laughs> they'll be weighing up those two competing things and probably an abstention is what you'll get from most Tories. So I read that the best case scenario for Rishi Sunak would be that this should go through without a vote. How does that happen mechanically? Well, t- typically the Speaker w- uh, would would see if there's there's demand for a vote. Um, so if you had a vast swathe of Boris Johnson supporters in the chamber and they said, we want to vote, the Speaker would would have to really concede a vote. If it's just one or two people, um, he he might say uh, um, that there's no need for a vote. What if Nadine Doris is really loud? <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't know if she's going to attend, do we? Um, and actually, uh, since you bring up Nadine Doris, um, we don't yet have that fourth by-election because she has not yet officially oh, a quit the speech. Point. <laughs> yes, no, thank yeah. you. And that will also be causing problems for the Prime Minister. Mm-hmm. I've read some interesting polling, actually, on Boris Johnson's uh, popularity in the Red Wall because it's you know it's often said that he's very popular in the Red Wall. Apparently, he's less popular than Philip Schofield or Xi Jinping. In the, in the Red Wall. <laughs> Who else was on that list? <laughs> I think is what it, I want to know. Yes, yeah, so it must be a long list. Um, Alex, uh, kind of a reminder of this uh, whole story came over the weekend when we had another video being leaked of Conservative Party staffers holding a party at 2020 during lockdown restrictions. Is this kind of an, another uncomfortable moment for the government, or has this, in in kind of political terms, all been processed? Do you think? I, th- I think it's a, it's obviously uncomfortable because all of it shows um, misbehaviour by Tory party staffers. Um, but this is one of the parties that the police already investigated. We already had a picture of the party. We already knew there wasn't social distancing. So it just sort of adds to that picture that we already had of of this one gathering. Um, and of course, the, the comments in the background of. <laughs> Um, which sort of say, let's hope that we we shouldn't stream this because it'll show people, it'll show we're bending the rules. Um, it, it's just not helpful, is it? Meanwhile, uh, Labour's focusing on green energy today. Are they also sick of talking about Boris Johnson? I think Labour will be quite happy to keep talking about Boris Johnson through to the next general election because they... Uh, as far as Labour's concerned, Rishi Sunak served as Boris Johnson's Chancellor for two years. So they, they'll try and, and sort of sully him as much by association as they can in the run-up to the general election. And what about the details of, of, of what Labour's announcing today? Because this is quite a big policy announcement from Labour, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is. Although, uh, you know, we sort of had bits and pieces of their green announcement for, for quite uh, for months and even years now. Um, they've, they've already rode back on some of their green pledges. I, I, they were originally planning on um, investing £28 billion a year in, in green measures um, for the entire length of the next parliament. They've now said that they'll have to wait um, a few years to get up to that level because they want to show that they, they're a they want to show demonstrate fiscal probity perhaps um so so yes i mean th- this shows their commitment to the climate agenda they think there are votes in that um but again that they're, they're having to be careful about how much they promise in advance of a general election because they don't know what state the public finances will be in yeah but not aside from the fi- public finances surely they also risk damaging jobs in the dirty energy industries and that might not be politically popular either well that's that's one of the things they're balancing and i think you'll find that you know they sort of rode a little bit back from their from their promises to end licensing of, of new oil and gas projects um 
I think their line is fairly similar to the Conservatives on that now. Um, what you'll find is there are a whole lot of undeveloped oil and gas fields that were issued licenses in the early 2000s and still have the right to develop but have not yet proceeded with development. And I think both Labour and the Tories would now say they're going to let those projects go ahead. OK. Alex Morales, our UK Government Editor, thank you very much. Now we're going to pivot from Partygate to mortgages, another problem for the Prime Minister. Now John Stepek, who writes for Bloomberg's Money Distilled newsletter, joins us. Uh, with more. Um, John, nice to have you uh, on the show again. Now, the Treasury has um, ruled out mortgage relief uh, for struggling homeowners. That's that's a sensible decision, isn't it? Oh, yeah, that's a sensible decision. I mean, there'd be a revolution if they did that. I mean, there are, there are so many struggling renters and first-time buyers out there um, that it's just not justifiable. And also, you know, at the end of the day, the, the proportion of people with mortgages is much smaller now than it was before 2008. Um, I mean, believe me, I have a lot of sympathy for people who are getting into trouble, but there's no justification for massive public spending on the behalf of a small interest group. I can understand the Treasury not want to work against the Bank of England, especially after what happened in autumn last year. But is it not sensible just to target those people who are at risk of repossession? I mean, the things, there's a lot of things that can be done at the bank end. So, for example, I mean, as I said, sort of th- one thing to remember is that this time round, coming into 2008, like the volume of people with variable rate mortgages and the volume of people who had kind of massive loan-to-value mortgages was much, much higher than it is now. Um, the actual group of people who have mortgaged households is generally less vulnerable than the people were before then. Um, the other thing is, if you're worried about coming off a fixed rate mortgage, which at the moment is the big thing, then you can extend your mortgage term, which means you pay more interest, but it means your monthly payment is going to be the same. Um, and in some cases, you could move on to a temporary interest only loan, although that is trickier because obviously you're meant to have the money you know, saved up at the end of that term. And in this case, that wouldn't be the case. But the things I think that the government, if you like, will kind of lean on the banks to be forbearing rather than making a direct intervention. Uh, how many signs of mortgage stress are there so far? Because all those things you list, it has been quite a gradual, hasn't it? And repossessions are really not are not rising much, are they? Well, they're not really. And um, to be honest, the, the repossessions, looking at UK finance, uh, the industry bodies' figures for this, they really haven't risen yet. Um, and they're mostly down to kind of uh, backlog from uh, COVID era stuff. So they're kind of basically at all time or near all time lows. They aren't going up much. Um, and because this rise has been so gradual and because employment is still strong, I'd be surprised if repossessions rise very much. The, the bigger risk is that what happens is that basically interest rates possibly overshoot. What happens is that people don't have as much spending money anymore because they're putting so much money into their mortgages then the economy starts to spiral down and suddenly we get employers laying people off. And the other thing to remember is that companies are carrying debt too. You know, so the ones that you know have maybe been, they've got to refinance as well. And the risk then is that maybe they actually um, yeah, start making people redundant. Particularly if there's any truth to that idea about um, labour hoarding. Hmm. So you know, this idea that people are keeping workers that they don't necessarily need, but they're, they're they remember how hard it was to hire them in the first place. If there is any truth to that, and they can add, you know, the dam busts, then suddenly you'll have a whole swathe of redundancies. Um, Raghuram Rajan, the 
former central banker of sorry, sorry central bank governor of India was making that point this morning and he's probably the smartest central banker in the world, I would say. So it's worth kind of paying attention to the guy. High praise, John Stepek. I would, there will be central bankers crying into their cornflakes now over the fact that you've you've picked a favourite. At um, least I didn't say the only smart central <laughs> banker. <laughs> um, look, you, I'm interested with the, the way that you're describing it. It sounds like the, the people who are going to be complaining most, and perhaps this is what you're reflecting from the money distilled readers that are writing to you as well, people are going to feel more squeezed, but they still have options before it becomes very serious. So is this sort of a general, for, from the government's point of view, are they just going to be worried about disgruntled voters as opposed to people who are really in desperate situations? I mean, for now, I would expect, so it is more kind of disgruntlement. Um, and also, you know, you have to feel for first-time buyers who maybe bought, you know, 18 months ago and are looking at, you know, they, there's a... On the one hand, you can sort of say, oh, well, people should have known that interest rates might go up, but they've been going down for 10 years now, OK? And, and no one in government and no one in central banking has kind of, like, emphasised, actually, guys, you know, you know, interest rates could, you know, more than treble in the space of 18 months because none of them believe that they could. So there's been a massive, massive policy-making failure here. And it's not just in the UK. The Australian central banks having the same problem. The, the kind of uh, lead uh, banker there uh, got into a lot of trouble for essentially having promised people that interest rates wouldn't go up. And then, like, six months later, they're at kind of, you know, 45 5% and they're having to go up again. So I do think that... Um, you can have a lot of sympathy for people, but at the same time, bailing out one small section of society at the court, particularly whenever we don't have any fiscal headroom, mm. you know, it's, it's just something that can't really be done. So you say massive policy failure. Can you settle a debate that's been going on in my house? So the question is, why not use fiscal policy to cut inflation? If it's the government's number one target, why not actually take responsibility for it? You've got this lag in monetary transmission. Not everybody's got a mortgage. Why not just have an inflation tax on homeowners who've already paid off their mortgage? Yes, you've got tax rates at their highest in the post-war period. Yes, it would be political suicide. But <laughs> banks aren't passing on the higher interest rates to savers. They're just banking the profits. So why are they in control of taking demand out of the economy asks someone in my household. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the the other person in your house is uh, it definitely has a good point in that. You know, fiscal policy is another way to you know you get two levers really. There's fiscal policy and monetary policy, and we have relied on monetary policy too heavily um, for a long time now. Um, I, the inflation tax idea is an interesting one. I mean, my own point of view, uh, imposing capital gains tax on primary residences, in other words, when you sell your house, if you sell it for a profit, you actually have to pay capital gains tax on it, which you currently don't, would actually be a good idea and a good policy. You scrap stamp duty as well, on the other hand, but that, that would make sense. And that was that's very similar to what you're talking about. Uh, the one issue is I guess that wouldn't put much of a dent in things because again it's dependent on the transactions of the, the houses to get that working and the other problem is I mean you're right there's uh, you know um, the tax burden is very high at the moment so putting more taxes on top is probably I mean yeah it'll be political suicide and also it might not make the most sense in terms of uh, productivity and kind of entrepreneurship and all that sort of stuff I think changing the way the tax base is structured would definitely be a good idea though. 
But is that something that we really have ever seen governments do in the past? I mean, decisions, especially when it comes to things like housing and home buying, tend to be much more based around trying to please a section of the electorate rather than making objectively sensible decisions about where the money goes. Yeah, I mean, capital gains tax on primary residents would be ultimate political suicide <laughs> with the capital S. I, mean, I, th- I agree. The one thing I would say, though, is that um, markets do change over time. And one reason we think this partly is because since like 19, late 90s, basically, um, and the sort of idea of the housing property ladder turning people, you know, basically a middle class kind of social uh, mobility ladder, that's that's completely changed. That's no longer the case. You know, you don't see, you know, uh, location, location, location and all those property shows anymore. So I actually think that... Where's the petty? Yeah, where's Phil gone? <laughs> like, you know, I was once camped next to him at a festival, and may I say, he had a really impressive tent, so it doesn't just apply to houses. <laughs> it appeared on the show afterwards. Oh, this is, a, this is a tangent. I'm sorry, John, you were making a serious point. <laughs> I was so looking at Phil with a whistle in his mouth just going through my head. Um, but no, it's, it's that thing of, you know, the, the electorate is changing. Um, and even, honestly, I think even kind of older people who own their houses outright, they do have kids and they're sort of, you know, I hear a lot from people, you know, the, the boomers get a lot of criticism, but they are not that happy about this either because they're, at the end of the day, haven't they, you know, equity release their homes so that, you know, their kids can get on the property Or accommodate ladder. extended families for long periods of time. Well, that too, aye. So, you know, they want their kids to move out as well. So I, I don't think that... It's certainly not as politically, as much of a political no-brainer as it once was uh, to just subsidise the housing market. John, a bit of a bugbear of mine is that we never mention savers when we're talking about interest rates. Because Uh, (laughs) a lot of people have a lot of money in the bank and they are every month going, oh, great news. And we always say, oh, this is all terrible, those poor people with mortgages. But lots and lots of people have savings. Yeah, but they're not getting it passed on. Well, well, they are, but maybe not not the full amount. I mean, to be fair, I mean... Yeah, if you if you look around just now, you can find kind of like five percent and like a you know a one year kind of fixed rate savings account. Um, if you're very very canny, then you know you could you could open dozens of small bank accounts and like get rates that are actually close to kind of almost you know matching inflation. Because I mean, there's one current account that was released recently to much kind of you know headlines. The small building society, and it was nine percent interest rate a year. You could only save fifty quid each month. So obviously, the effective rate over a year is is buttons. Um, but but you know, if you are on the lookout, then you can get decent rates. And you're absolutely right, you and we we don't talk about the other side of this, you know, which is that there have been people who've been starved of interest for you know over a decade now. And five percent compared to the one percent they were struggling to get is quite juicy. Yeah, it's definitely it's, it's it's you know it's chunky. It's not it's still not real. No, it but isn't. it's no. you know it's getting there. When we're thinking about all of this, the, the latest figures that we have from the, on the housing market are from Rightmove, showing that prices in London uh, fell one point six percent month on month. Nationally, prices broadly unchanged. Um, is this is where are we? Do we think in the correction of housing prices, and and how important is that to people now, given that mortgage rates are so high? I mean, I think we're on the way down. Um, if you actually look at the right move figures, then weirdly enough, the low asking prices are obviously sort of fantasy prices to an extent. The rate of uh, the direction of change is actually very predictive nationwide. And if you look at a graph, right move is on the way down. So I suspect nationwide is going to continue down. Um, most of the economists I look at are sort of saying like a maybe 
nominal fall, which means much more after inflation. My own view has kind of been for a while that your kind of standard house price crash stroke correction is about 30% in real terms. I think that looks more and more likely now. How much of it comes from inflation, how much comes from nominal terms, you know, it's kind of up in the air. But the whole point about rising mortgage rates is that first-time buyers can't afford to pay as much money to buy a house, and therefore house prices have to come down. And, I mean, the buy-to-let market is in real trouble, I think. And this is the knock-on effect for renters, which is kind of my follow-up to that question, mm. is, is that you know higher interest rates do have an effect if people have to you know renew their leases and their rent goes up dramatically. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the tricky thing there is, so you've got... I mean, the landlords, I mean, you can... I realise not a lot of people have sympathy for landlords, um, and I'm not saying they particularly should have. It's just that, uh, say you get a 2% mortgage, on a, and it's a buy-to-let mortgage. It's now going up to 6%. The monthly mortgage payment will treble because it's an interest-only payment. So you can see why rents are going up so much, because you know, you're know you talking about a 500 going up to 1500 And suddenly you go from having a very decent kind of profit margin, which does cover voids, etc., etc., to having, you know, probably losing money on a monthly basis. At some point, those people are going to be forced to sell. But the tricky thing then is, I mean, in a weird kind of way, if the government could facilitate some way a buy-to-let landlords, you know, you know, being able to let their tenants buy the property from them quickly, that would, in a way, be a better way of using, you know, policy to kind of shift things along faster. But instead, what would happen is, you know, the thing would it would come off the market, it would end up being sold, the renters end up having to find somewhere else to rent in yeah. the meantime. And the cycle so, continues. Aye, it's, like, it's almost like a supply chain snarl up. Because technically speaking, if a landlord sells their property, that should be something a first-time buyer just buys, you know, in an idealised world. But that's not what actually, obviously, happens. Okay. Yeah, anecdotally, a lot of landlords are selling up at the moment. There's a lot of, a lot of yeah, we're, and we're seeing that borne out from the data as well. That's what we're hearing from from those that um, that do surveys in this market as well. Look, John, always fascinating to talk to you about it. I feel like this is a subject we will return to again mm-hmm. soon. And you should, of course, subscribe to John's Money Distilled newsletter as well for all of these thoughts in condensed and daily form uh, in your inboxes. That's John Stepek there. And our colleagues on the markets live page will be discussing this in a Q and A session on the topic tomorrow at noon. They'll be joined by a panel of experts, so you can send in your questions on this very subject. Yeah, you'll find the UK Markets Today page on the front page of the Bloomberg website. But that's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so that other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Walcock and our audio engineer was Marifal Hussain. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.